I'm Sean Graham, and what's old as news this week is food security in the North. For years, a common sight on social media were photographs from Northern grocery stores highlighting how expensive it is to buy food in Northern Canada. An issue that goes along with the lack of clean and accessible water in several communities. And routinely, federal governments talk about ways to resolve these issues, to make life more affordable in the North, to ensure access to safe drinking water. But these issues continue, leading to the question of why governments don't necessarily explore the origins of food insecurity in the North as a way to potentially tackle the problem. And that is the subject of a new book entitled Plundering the North, A History of Settler Colonialism, Corporate Welfare, and Food Insecurity by Kristen Burnett and Travis Hay, in which they explore northern food policy and discuss how government and corporate processes have led to chronic food insecurity and water insecurity within northern communities and really tackles at the core, the heart of what is going on in the north. I really enjoyed going through the book, really enjoyed talking with Kristen and Travis about not only the book itself, but some of the research that went into it and the larger underpinnings of cultural, political policies that have contributed to the situation. So as I said, I had a chance to talk with them earlier, really enjoyed the conversation. Think you will as well. So let's get right into my chat with Kristen Burnett and Travis Hay. All right. And Kristen Burnett and Travis Hay join me now. Kristen, Travis, how are you today? Good. Thank you. Doing great, Sean. Thanks for having us. Hey, thanks so much for being here. As I said in the intro, we're talking about plunder the North. And let's start with a question that has confounded many of my friends that is what is the North? And this is certainly in the context <laughs> of, uh, you know, I curl and there's Northern Ontario as, as an entry into the national championships, which makes a lot of people in the West mad. But the idea of what is the North? Where does the North start? How do we define the North? So when you're writing about the North and, and the, the subject matter here, how do you actually define what you're talking about when you talk about Northern Ontario and certainly just the North more broadly? Travis, did you want to take that? Travis grew up in the North, so I think you should answer okay. that question. Well, yeah, that's that's the funny part, right? Because like I grew up in Thunder Bay. And so if you go to Toronto, that's North. You're in the North. It's cold yeah. up there, right? Mm -hmm. But if you go to the actual north, like the provincial and territorial norths around James Bay, Hudson's Bay, anywhere in the territories. I mean, now we're getting into north. So there's levels to this game of northern, right? And in Toronto, you always see the Toronto Raptor slogan, right? Like, we the north, we the north. <laughs> and yet, as you know, most Canadians are aware, <laughs> all of us live, most of us live along the border with the US. And the way in which Canadians don't really think of the north, despite thinking of themselves as northern, I think is one of the main dynamics of identity that we don't necessarily unpack in the book, but caring about the Canadian North, knowing about the material conditions up there is just a, uh, a big lack of knowledge, we feel like, in, uh, in the citizenry. But I won't speak for Kristen as well. I'm sure she has a, a perspective here as well. And I, I think 
when we when we decided how we were going to define the North in terms of what we were looking at, uh, one of the things that we wanted to do was very much look at those communities that did not have year-round access to like all-season roads, right? And how that shaped um, access to food and the ways in which the government kind of instituted particular policies around food and and access to kind of southern locales, right? Um, because I think that's a kind of a, a defining factor slash shaping factor of this book and the way in which this kind of the economies or the foodscapes get gets, uh, created and, and then played out. Would you agree, Travis? Oh, yeah, definitely. The The goal of trying to make life in the North look just like life in the South is, I think, a silly idea, but also one that really shapes a lot of the policies, not only in the 20th century, but all the way up till today. And I think many mm-hmm. Canadians are vaguely aware of things like boil water advisories and do not consume orders. Um, and those issues quite justifiably get lots of attention. But the issue of food in the North, I feel like we both wanted to write this book because that was something that when speaking with real Northerners, right, which neither Kristen or I would define ourselves as, that's something that we realized very quickly that like, oh, this this is one of the major issues. And we don't see it giving being given the same amount of space and breadth and attention within Canada as, you know, other issues. And I think part of it stemmed from the fact, like, I grew up in Southern Alberta, Treaty 7, and, you know, my idea, my for me, when I came to Thunder Bay to take my first job, that was North, right? And so I, I also then discovered my own kind of understanding of what Northern Canada was. Um, I had never been to a remote community. I had never understood the kinds of conditions of access to food, uh, particularly retail food in Northern communities that are fly-in, um, and even, you know, those communities that have um, all-season roads, right, depending upon where they are and where their location is to the nearest grocery store and you know their access to land-based foods as well shapes that economy shapes that access and so for me it was a really eye-opening experience right coming from southern alberta and you know living in a large city like calgary living in toronto to do my phd you know that this kind of changed the way in which i saw how people access food and i hadn't done before i started this project i was a historian of medicine i was not someone who did food studies right and so this was this was a learning process for me as well in doing that well i'll say like i grew up Southern Ontario as well. My Northern experience is North Bay. I went to Nipissing. That's where I did my undergraduate degree. (laughs) For me, that was Northern Ontario and that's well South of most of the country still. Uh, But but Travis, it's interesting you say like real Northerners, because one of the things I think that most Canadians would associate with the North would be Indigenous communities. And when we talk about the communities that you're exploring here, what are the demographics of the communities? Are they principally indigenous, uh, given that a a good focus of the book is settler colonialism and the impact of the state on these communities? So is it very much sort of the native newcomer relationship, identity, and, and those things that are propelling these discussions? Yes, I would say so. I would say that there's a very big kind of north south geographic logic to the service equity within Canada. And when we speak of real Northerners, like I'm not trying to bring up ideas of like lumberjacks and plaid shirts and big beards <laughs> and, you know, these other trappings of like Northern Canadian identity. But it's it's really fundamentally a knowledge of material conditions. Like Kristen is saying, something like winter roads, 
right? If you've never driven on one and have no idea what they are, speaking to a quote unquote real northerner is going to be an eye-opening experience for you. And it's probably going to be a bothersome experience for you. The things that we take for granted, not just including things like healthcare and education, but really just food and water, very fundamental things, things that aren't indigenous rights, but that are human rights, but that are deprived with uh, uh, indigenous communities are deprived of them because they live in the north. But there's also this larger logic here when we're looking at the politics of rural Canada. I would argue that those are not very well served or represented areas either, but we cannot collapse, I don't think, uh, rural and northern Canada with uh, indigenous communities, First Nation and Inuit communities in the north uh, experience northern Canada in a fundamentally different way than other communities. And often, uh, you know, the only way for infrastructure to grow in those places are in ways that benefit southerners, whether we're talking about, you know, the emergent ring of fire in northern Ontario, whether we're looking at access to oil fields with in Alberta. I mean, so often the only way to produce this infrastructure so far has been in a way that plunders the North, which is, you know, is why I think we have a pretty apt title for the book here. They put a hole in that bucket and all the money comes out. Well, and I mean, I think one of the things we want to be cautious about is, is if we're talking about food and access to water in the North, those things existed for Indigenous people prior to, you know, the imposition of settler colonialism, right? And it's the imposition of settler colonialism that has withdrawn those resources from communities in very violent ways. And that's kind of what we wanted to talk about in terms of access to food uh, in this book, right? What happens to people's foods, food environments when you get the imposition of this kind of settler state that wants to make Indigenous folks who live in the North more like people who live in the South. Could you just elaborate on that and, and talk about it a little bit more? Because that's one of the things I've, I was wondering going into the book was people have lived in the North for thousands of years and successfully and, and been able to do that. So how has the colonial project, the Canadian colonial project, disrupted those systems and created an environment where food and water are scarce or, scarce or difficult to, to find? in a way that seems very different from what were thriving, successful communities. Well, and I mean, if you look at, you know, the, the kind of forced settlement of Indigenous communities in the North, right? So you're looking at kind of highly adapted mobile economies that could move, you know, seasonally to to um, to make use of particular resources, right? They knew when, you know, territories would flood. They knew where, you know, seasonal movements of animals. They knew where, you know, potatoes grew. And so you move across the landscape in very sort of expert knowledge ways, right, to, to partake in these resources. And then in, this, in the Second World War period, you get the imposition of reserves, right, this kind of forced resettlement in areas where a lot of communities were like, we don't want to be there because in the spring we know it floods, right? Or, you know, we don't want to be there because we know we can't access water for, you know, X number of times of the year. And so what you have are these landscapes that are forced and these communities that are forced on Indigenous nations that are done by the people in the South with no knowledge of the North, right? And I think that a lot of communities uh, would look very differently in terms of their layouts if if uh, Indigenous communities had actually been part of that process, right, in meaningful ways. So it seems then that a lot of it, at the core, the starting point would be land policy that we see really across the country in the, certainly the treaty areas. Is that a in, sort of a starting point where if you look at, say, the number of treaties, does that provide, if someone has studied the number of treaties, understands the number of treaties, does that a rough equivalent of, or at least a starting point where you can start to understand 
what's happening in the North as well, that the, the broad strokes land policy is somewhat consistent across the country. Yeah, I, I would say, and we, we really tried to do that in the book where we not only looked at the letter of the law in the treaties, since they all have very similar language around hunting and fishing rights, uh, but then we look at the imposition of provincial hunting laws, right? First Nations signed treaties with the federal government who promises them access to whether we're on the, you know, the East Coast and Mi'kma'ki with the access to the fisheries, which continues to be a major issue uh, in Nova Scotia today, uh, or we're looking in the provincial or territorial norths with, uh, you know, the ability to sell moose or other herd animals. This is uh, is a huge part of the history here, where in the provinces, deputize game wardens and create a condition where there's a commercial incentive to bully indigenous hunters, trappers, and traders to say to take what is actually their treaty right to trade land-based goods, to take it away from them, find them, imprison them. I mean, there's been some excellent work done in this area already, of course, but this larger history whereby provincial game wardens, bag limits, hunting seasons are imposed on First Nations communities under the ridiculous logic of conservationism, right? If you look even briefly at the history, uh, environmental history in Canada, you will understand very quickly that uh, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples have a very good governance system when it comes to land use and sustainability. This is not something that is mirrored, in my opinion, in terms of settler colonial governance. And the imposition of provincial hunting laws is one of the starting points in the book where we start to look at how policies not only infringed on those treaty rights, but created this landscape of food insecurity and a lack of food sovereignty across the North that we see today. But you did mention earlier the danger of equating Northern Canada or rural Canada purely or exclusively with Indigenous communities. So how would members of settler communities who have who live in the North, how does how do they relate to these issues in the, the broader communities that they live in? And you know, if it isn't purely or if we're not associating the North exclusively with Indigenous communities, how do the settler communities fit in to this particular dynamic where colonial policies are having a significant impact on the food and water resources available? So, I mean, if we look at the provincial north, the territorial north, we're looking almost predominantly, like if you look at northern Ontario, people who live in the in the far north of the province are... I would say 99% Indigenous, right? Um, it's only when you move into places like Nunavut where that that kind of demographics changes is a little, and even then it doesn't really, right? Because a lot of those folks that come from the South to live in those communities are doing so at the behest of the government, right? They're doing so because they're, you know, they're teachers or they're working for the, you know, the federal government or the provincial government, and they've come in for whatever sort of, whatever sort of kind of work reason. Um, and those individuals have demonstrably different resources to access. And I think one of the points we make in the book is that you have all of these Southerners come in to live in the North, whether they're teachers, whether they're principals at schools, whether they're not, you know, uh, um, police officers or, you know, healthcare providers, they actually get uh, additional allowances and monies for living in the North, right? So in addition to what is a significant salary, right, they also then receive what is called like a Northern allowance, whatever iteration that is in, in the various different provinces, to recognize that it costs more to actually ship food and goods into the communities in the North. First Nations people don't get any of that, right? But yet, those are the same individuals when talking about why Indigenous folks who live in those communities can't make ends meet or can't buy what is, you know, perceived to be a nutritious diet, they always say it's 
budgeting, right? That it's because indigenous folks don't know how to budget money. And I'm like, if you're four or $500 short every month to buy food, no matter how much budgeting acumen you have, it's not going to make a difference, right? So it's, I mean, one of the things, and Travis, you can, um, you can respond to this as well, is that there is a marked lack of just awareness at, at points when you when you read the reports that the government has put out about why there's food insecurity in communities, right? That it's food education, that it's budgeting knowledge, right? That those are the reasons why people can't eat well. And, and that's completely a falsehood, right? And distracts from the actual real problem, which is there's not enough money to buy food and pay for rent and, and clothe your children and all of those other sorts of, you know, basic things people want to, to live, right? And, and then we distract by saying it's because Indigenous people have a failing in some way. And that's, and that's not the case, right? It's the system that's failing. And this is such a keynote characteristic of settler colonial discourse in Canada, when we have a structural issue, and then Indigenous peoples are pathologized as if they only did something different, that the situation <laughs> would somehow, you know, resolve itself. And I'm going to come across perhaps a little mean and cynical when I say this, right? But the amount of times that, that uh, Kristen and I have kind of uh, looked at situations wherein people think that Northern food security can be solved by like a new avocado recipe or just making guacamole beets. or Hey, beets, <laughs> ma- borscht. Ooh, borscht is so healthy. Yeah. Right. And I'm sure guacamole and borscht are nutritionally very rich and fantastic meals, but the disconnect between many nutritionists and dietitians who operate in the North is a pretty severe one. And they have specialized bodies of knowledge and expertise that I don't have. And so I do respect that to some extent. But the cynic in me just really wants to underscore how often Kristen and I have been told well, I sometimes call them bro science solutions too, right? Like, you know, be like, what about what if my cousin grows hydroponics and what if we created greenhouses and what if we used a blimp that uses this kind? Like there is a lot of armchair experts from the South who comment on the North. And one thing that I, I really hope that we were able to avoid in this book is that optic precisely, right? That rather than not talking to Northern communities who deal with these material conditions and they know things that we don't know. Like I'm not trying to be faux humble here. Like you can study Indian policy nutrition north subsidies all you want but the actual community members who have working knowledge of these systems they know it so much better and you know this is true more broadly no one knows jordan's principle better than the moms who have to use that system to apply for it and academics i would be would do well to have a little humility in terms of our structural coherence we might get policies but oh we do not get how they work on the ground (laughs) and doubly so in the provincial and territorial north and that that was a real learning experience for me as someone who grew up in thunder bay and would for a large period of my life say i'm a northerner i get it it's cold i shovel uh no, there, like I said, there's levels to this game. And the expertise that was in communities is, I really think, one of the secret ingredients uh, uh, of what makes this book successful. Well, that does bring up something that I've, I've been wondering about is the idea of, because Kristen, when you said the word nutritious, you kind of used air quotes around it. So it brings up the question of the colonial perception of food. And what counts as being a nutritious diet or a well-rounded diet or whatever thing you want to hear from a commercial that they talk about all the time on, on the food that we eat. So how much of the policies that are in place are based off of a Western colonial vision of what a, a well-rounded diet, quote unquote, should be versus traditional foods that, again, have sustained people for, for thousands of years? Is it a idea of these 
experts, as you say, Travis, whether not understanding or potentially looking down on those traditional diets and then trying to create some sort of structure where a Western diet is available to people? Or is there something malicious in what's going on? Yeah, I don't know if there's, I would use the word malicious, right? I think that there's, I, I, I think there's ill, I mean, I think intent is ill in terms of the assimilation, bar, you know, like bar none uh, of indigenous folks and the destruction of uh, their food ways, right? But I, I do think that there are ups and downs in terms of Indian policy uh, around food. So, you know, if you look in the 1920s and the 1930s, there's a denigration of land-based foods, right? The 1940s, Ian Mosby has shown this, that they're saying, oh, you know, people who are relying on land-based foods that are not taking vitamins, that are not, you know, eating particular types of Western food, i.e. tomatoes, and eating pablum for children, you know, they're not doing well. And so a lot of the kind of impositions in an indigenous diets mirrors what's going on in Southern Canada, right? People need to de- eat more milk and dairy, right? And we see these things happening and being imposed. You know, there's there's efforts to reduce, you know, the length of breastfeeding in indigenous communities. And that has a huge impact on indigenous communities. And, and then, you know, shifts in the 70s, the 1960s and the 70s, where, you know, they want women to breastfeed and indigenous women uh, have lower rates of breastfeeding at that point, right? And and so you see the impact of these policies or these sort of nutrition trends in communities in really violent ways, right? And I mean, we know that, you know, when stores market particular micro ingredients, right, that you should have, you know, this vitamin in your diet or this mineral in your diet, and it will make you really, really healthy. That's a really limited way of looking at people's diets as nutritious and healthy. And, you know, people like Mosby um, and Crystal Walters, who's done some amazing work on looking at nutrition programs and nutrition uh, education within Indigenous communities, that a lot of what they're doing is just based on the fads that have been happening in the dominant society and then imposing them on, on Indigenous communities, right? And, and and they get reproduced in very harmful ways. Is there a corporate element to that imposition? I, I, certainly in this country, there's what, three grocery players currently, <laughs> whatever it is, right? Three main ones. Yeah. And we've seen it all across the country with, with mm-hmm. the uh, rate of, of food, food inflation. But is there a similar trend for Northern communities where the main food players in this country are benefiting from this imposition of both the nutritional requirements, such as they may or may not exist, as well as limiting traditional food sources and the the traditional path with that that food would get to people yeah like uh, one of the things that i'm most proud of in the book are some of the middle chapters where just admittedly Kristen took the lead on this one because she's looking at the histories of family allowances of breastfeeding and specifically of the ways in which the state was trying to change the way mothers related to and fed their children and throughout these chapters uh what what Kristen was able to bring to this too was the degree to which the first the Hudson's Bay Company and then after 1987 what becomes the Northwest Company which for Canadian historians is always maddening right because it's not the Northwest Company that was started no, at the not. end of the 20th <laughs> at the end of the 19th century in Montreal by Scottish but their own company history tries to situate them within that it's it's fascinating it's, it's sorry yeah. that's an aside I'm sorry 
there. But if if we go up until 1987, we see the degree to which the Hudson's Bay Company was always benefiting from representing the settler state, from assimilating communities. And we didn't write this in the book, and I'm not sure if Kristen would sign off on me saying this, but they act like Indian agents in my view, right? They're making sure that the letters of the law are being followed, that the assimilatory project of the Department of Indian Affairs is moving forward. And they often do so in some some sometimes coercive ways, right? But- well, I mean... Sorry to interrupt, but I mean, the very fact that the federal government deposits family allowance checks with the Hudson's Bay Company, right? I mean, it's it's basically, if you look... A comparison that I would I would make is um, you know the company stores that they have in mining companies in you know in in the United States and Canada where you know people worked for a company they bought food from that company they paid rent to that company and that company owned them right and you get a situation here where that's the exact same thing that gets created right that they they work for the Hudson's Bay Company they buy their food from the Hudson's Bay Company the federal government doesn't even pay them the money they're owed through treaty annuities or 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 family allowance, it's paid to the store and the store determines what they purchase. I mean, it is an incredibly horrifying situation. In the late 60s and the early 70s, uh, Howard Adams, you can see this in the documentary, The Other Side of the Ledger, very clearly names and critique what the Hudson's Bay Company is doing. Very clearly says you're not investing in our communities, right? While you had this complete dictatorial control of almost all services in the communities, you did nothing to grow them. And in the book, we unpack that period of the history. And it also enters into the larger history of department stores, since in some of those you know latter decades of the 20th century, the Hudson's Bay Company, to some extent was trying to kind of divest from northern retailing and move into the department stores, right? We don't want to be dealing with the closing decades of the fur trade in the north. We want to be selling HBC blankets in Winnipeg, right? (laughs) And the government in some ways kind of entices and induces them through these early structures prior to the food mail program, uh, as well as that program itself, to kind of keep the Hudson's Bay Company in the northern retailing game. And in 1987, a group of venture capitalists, many of whom were from the Hudson's Bay Company, they switch over. And rather than kind of doing the work of the federal government in a kind of we wish we were in department retailing, but there's this efficacious system set up for us to maintain profitability after 1987, whereas before the Hudson's Bay Company was arguably kind of negotiating its new identity in you know the falling decades of the fur trade, the early rise of department store eras, after 1987, we get very hot hawkish venture capitalists who in a much more concerted way target these northern communities and that's all they're concerned about. They're not concerned about retailing in southern locales. They want to maximize profit generation and the sale of foods and they do so in very, very aggressive ways that were unfortunately exported internationally since the Northwest Company starts buying up access to food markets in the Caribbean, the South Pacific. It becomes a very big issue. And I mean, and they're, they're stated in their annual reports, which is what we use to write those chapters, right? Like it's their own, it's their own propaganda that they put out. It's a very profitable business model to, to deliver food to isolated populations with very limited choices, right? Around where they purchase their food. And, and that has, has shown to, to make enormous profit for the company, enormous profit for the company. Could you just give an example of, say, one way that they are being hawkish? Because I think this is something that I, I know I certainly struggle with when I think about the way in which food producers make their money. Because I have no idea how much it costs to produce something or, or what shipping costs or, or whatever it is. So like, is there something within the margins that we that we can track that, that they're using or, or, or whatever policies? Like just something to give 
people like me who don't really necessarily understand the whole process, just an example of how these individuals are being hawkish and taking advantage of this this opportunity to make all this money. Yeah, well, uh, it, just as a quick run through, you know, after after 1987, if you read the annual reports, which are very interesting because that's what they're telling to their shareholders and potential investors, which is very different than the public facing literature and media statements that this company makes, right? In the media, it's so risky. We are risking all of this in the in the north. But when you read the uh, actual annual reports, they're looking at settlement payments from Truth and Reconciliation Commission activities. They're studying how often and uh, their customer base is reliant on. Federal government spending programs. They're really looking at all the ways in which money is coming into the North, and then they come up with ways to bring it out as fast as possible. So at first, in a plan they called Enterprise 95, which was invented in 1990, they consolidated the sale on food since they realized that TVs, Halloween costumes, things that only are affordable if you have surplus income, they basically cut these largely out of their retail plan. Once they consolidate profits on food, now it's fast food. Now the profits grow further still. Once they consolidate that market, pharmaceuticals. Now it's medical supplies. Now it's banking and financial services, postal services. If it makes money, that service is currently in many ways dominated by the Northwest company or its subsidiary companies as well. So there is almost no way to even compete with them in the North under the current program. Since if you wanted to build a competing grocery store, who's going to be, who's going to, the equipment rentals, how are you going to transport it? The wraparound system that they have in addition to food makes it impossible for competition. And in the course of writing this book, although we lack the knowledges of how much it might cost to send a bag of potatoes to a Northern community, we work with Northern community members who run co-ops, who do certain, we can't give too much information here because this is also a very litigious company. We don't want to identify any of these individuals, but we work with people who bring vegetables to their community at cost on their own credit cards. And they are very aware of the gouging that is happening at the point of purchase. And we, you know, really, really sign off on the ways in which these community members have listed the price gouging as a major issue. I have many examples here, but I'm starting to get a little too hummingbirdy and talking too fast. So I'd love to pass it off to Kristen. No, and I think I just wanted to to point to, there's a really great article that recently came out by an economist at uh, Toronto Metropolitan University, Nicholas Lee and Tracy Galloway, who works at the University of Toronto. And they, they, they literally looked at the NNC, so the Nutrition North subsidy, which subsidizes particular foods into the community to see if it actually, during COVID, uh, over a period of five years, had actually lowered the cost of food, right? And it was being passed on to customers. And they're finding that... almost 60% of it is not right and I you know I, I don't have the numbers here but it was a sh- it was a shocking statement of how little oversight there is over over this kind of food subsidy that gets passed on and how much um, the companies are benefiting from it right that they're making money kind of hand over fist I mean one of the grossest ways in which I would say the northern store makes money is the sale of water right I was at I was at I was at a meeting uh, recently with some community members uh, who were talking and, you know, we're doing, uh, some work around nutrition North and, uh, food sovereignty in the North. And, and one of the things that they wanted us to, wanted us to look into was, you know, what the hell is going on with water. So basically the Northern store has, you know, the Northwest company has taken up filters into communities that don't have potable water and have taken water that is from that community owned by that community, filtered it, and then sold it back to that community. To be honest, like that to me is just the sort of emblematic of the, I think, 
Travis, what did you say, hawkish nature of the Northwest Company, right? Where they see profit, they, they, will, they will pounce. In your discussions with people in the North, what are some of the barriers to setting up more co-ops or more community-based initiatives to bring food in, to circumvent the Northwest Company and circumvent some of the, the gouging or the high prices? Like What impediments are in their way to create more community-based initiatives like that? So to use an example, I mean, we, we worked with some community members who ship, who run like kind of a biweekly alternative market and the amount of expertise and knowledge that is required to ship food into this community, right? Because it comes from Toronto, but, or it comes from places in, in Quebec, it, you know, it goes by train, plane, you know, um, you know, it, it, it sometimes it's shipped, it, you know, they, they order food from no frills and, you know, they ship it in a, in a taxi to the, you know, to the train station, the train station takes it to where, you know, it's going to go out on a plane and, and so even the sort of the knowledge around that, I think, is important, but also to have the capital in order to be able to start doing that is actually quite significant, right? So if you think about that, you just actually have to have the resources to be able to upfront costs to ship food, to know where to get it to know how many customer bases that you're going to have. All of these things um, are really, really difficult. A lot of communities have, have done it, but but not enough, right? And, and a lot of the times when communities do it, um, they face such uh, competition from the Northern store that it becomes really challenging to do it. Uh, Travis, would you agree? Oh, yeah. And it's not uncommon for the Northern store to all of a sudden have a promotion that undercuts the local <laughs> food market, right? Like, like I say, they're, they pay attention. They're looking, right? Uh, this, this is a bit anecdotal, right? But there's, uh, there, there, there is a larger history here in the North also when community organizations, tribal councils, chief and council are able to ascertain funding in order for community programming. Very often that just gets funneled right to the Northern store as well, because those communities don't have the benefit of using the entire colonial history and architecture of the Hudson's Bay company to their benefit, which the Northern store absolutely does, right? So they don't have a ladder to climb up to get to the same operational capacity as these communities. They regularly don't have high schools in the community. So I really want to echo what Kristen's saying. Like, we, we, if you teach federal Indian policy, you know how complicated and ridiculous it can be, right? And I've kind of made this point already, but I'll make it in a different way. If you bring an Indigenous student who has status into class and you give a quiz on, oh, if Billy was born in 1997, but his grandmother was born in 1984 and they lost status, does he have 6-1 status? Six, the Indigenous students, unfortunately, due to their life experience, get this right away. Ask a very highly educated master's or PhD student what kind of status this individual will have in this case. And it's so complicated, they won't be able to know. So even if you have a fancy education, navigating these systems of funding and of uh, you know provincial and federal fiduciary responsibility is maddingly complex. It's hard to write about, and I can't imagine having to navigate that system to make sure that my kid had a healthy breakfast. I simply couldn't imagine what that must be like for those communities. Well, and, and even accessing particular programs. So if we look at Nutrition North Canada, it's it's a subsidy that's paid directly to the retailers for particular foods uh, based on the location of the community determines the level of the subsidy, right? And it's gone 
it, it was introduced in what, 2010, 2012? I can never remember. Um, I should know this, right? I just wrote the book. They, they bundled um, it and it took a few years, so it's hard to It, it took a few years, yeah. And I mean, there were so many huge protests over it. But I mean, even to order to access the subsidy, there are, you know, some community retailers uh, in Nunavut and various other sort of northern communities that have accessed it, but it took them, you know, two to three years in order to access the subsidy. Initially, there were most communities were not eligible for the subsidy because they had not used the food mail program in enough in order to in order to access or to be eligible for the NNC that changed in 20 you know in 2019 but what it means is that a lot of the the administrative structures that are required in order to access subsidies in these programs they don't exist in these small sort of mom and pop type places if you look at the northwest company they don't even have to submit upfront paperwork in order to get reimbursed for the subsidy they get a set amount every year right? So their, their portion of the NNC subsidy that gets paid out to retailers is given to them automatically. It's not something that has to be submitted through paperwork, copious amounts of paperwork with way bills and all of that, that other um, organizations have to do, right? And I mean, I've talked to community organizations that like, I don't have the capacity to print a receipt for every single customer that has the NNC subsidy on it, right? I, I don't have the capacity to do that. I don't have the capacity to fill out all of these, all of these, you know, receipts and applications afterwards so that I get reimbursed, right? I also don't have the, you know, the capacity to make the application in the first place, right? Because they make these bureaucratic processes so onerous and prohibitive, a lot of people can't access the programs that are supposed to help people, right? And so then they service the company that has that infrastructure already set up. So then how does this benefit the state? Like, how does this benefit the federal state, the provincial states that it strikes me that, okay, politically, people in the South might not necessarily care. So maybe that is actually the answer. <laughs> politically, it's, it's, it's people in the South tend to not vote on Northern issues. But just from a, a broad strokes, having these, com having communities that don't have access to food, don't have access to clean water, certainly goes against the ethos that the federal government at least puts forth as being central to a Canadian identity and yet these things still persist and the truth and reconciliation commission and the calls to action i mean the government's record on moving forward on those is plainly available and people can look it up and i, I maybe that's part of the answer to this question too that the lack of process related to that is is associated with this but just in general the the, the state's role in this and and is there a benefit to the state either just non not intervening in a greater way or in a different way or is there a tangible benefit to the state and state authorities through this process well i would jump in here and say that uh, the federal government is effective at using this situation uh, as a way to kind of sanitize their own operation of federal indian policy they like to do this red herring game the federal government right like if you say oh there's a lack of uh, food security in the north the federal government say well we've invested this much money last year in this and this red herring of well okay you've invested this much money in this issue one to what extent was that money drawn from consolidated revenue funds from first nations themselves and are you suggesting that you gave them this money or usually what's happening is that the federal government is using first nations monies itself and trying to convince the Canadian populace that this is their hard-earned taxpayer dollars, which obfuscates the larger fiduciary relationship, which is one of the most frustrating things in this issue in the general sense. But 
the government is also very effective in using this. Like, for example, when Trudeau was uh, running in October of 2015, I voted for him quite gleefully, slightly cynically, but gleefully saying, oh, here's someone who's promised clean water, right? Here's something that they're able to do. And although I wasn't confident that that would be something that would be resolved, they're able to use it as a kind of chess pawn piece in their battles with each other in these larger federal games of politics. Harper can come in and say, I'm going to change the entire food mail program because I'm much more efficient. I will use market-based solutions and he'll depict the liberals as being wasteful, as having, you know, this northern largesse. And then when the uh, liberals can get into power, they can critique the federal government previously. For example, when Nutrition North uh, Canada was created, because it was created under Harper's neoliberal logics, there is no financial accountability. And the Northern Store and Northwest Company does not have to tell the government about how much it's inflating its prices and what is actually going to shipping and what is not. And so passing the buck back and forth between either the province and the feds or the liberals and conservatives allows the government to have these optics and reports to say that they're doing something when in effect, I would argue that what they've been doing, especially since Nutrition North Canada has been more damaging than helpful, but it allows them this red herring where they can say we've done X, Y, and Z to support food security in the North. All the while, the larger systems and structures that they're doing serve to benefit the corporation rather than the actual community. In the course of your research, and talking to communities, what themes emerged from the communities and community members themselves? What sort of things in in your discussions with them did they express that they want changed? What things would they put into place? And I I think one of the the processes here, and certainly it's part of the calls to action, is to listen to communities across the country. So in those discussions, as you're going through the process, what were you hearing from northern communities? Well, I'll I'll jump in here and just the things that have been covered that we can say, you know, very openly and safely since they've been in the news media. Following a suicide crisis in 2017, the Youth Council of Ottawa Piscat First Nation very clearly underscored that the deprivatization of the Northern Store was important to the health and survival of youth in their community. Chief Donnie Morris from KI First Nation has come out and clearly said that the Northern Store actually owes those communities reparations, which is something that I also personally support. So although we can't really ascribe quotes to the individuals we worked with, since again, the Northwest Company is very litigious and they're very hawkish, they're watching, they're collecting data to support and sustain their business operations. To me, it's a matter of principle. We support these communities and what they say and what they want. And although we could sit here, and I think Kristen probably knows a lot more than I do about the actual day-to-day operations of co-ops and alternative markets that try to get healthy foods at an affordable price into those communities, of course, we support that. But at the root of this issue is a fundamental one of sovereignty, at least as I see it. And I couldn't support you know, the Ottawa Piscat Youth Council in understanding what their community needs. And when they say they want to deprivatize Northern Store, then this This is something that as a treaty person from, you know, Thunder Bay, Ontario, this is something that I consider it, you know, very important to support and talk about. Well, and I, I mean, I think one of the big things that came out in the kind of community conversations that we had when we were doing the research um, and the research, you know, is ongoing. And, but part of it is like people want to be able to buy milk for their kids. Right. And, 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 
a lot of it was just kind of understanding how the kind of current system came to be, right? I mean, if in talking with community, a lot of people were unaware that the Northwest Company wasn't the Hudson's Bay Company, right? And, you know, they did not understand, and they had perceived themselves as having this kind of relationship with the Hudson's Bay Company that predated Confederation, right? And that was a part of how their, you know, communities operated in their territories for a very, very long time. And so there, there are also ways in which this kind of corporation has almost predated on those kinds of relationships and understandings that have developed over generations, right? And one of the most disturbing uh, things that I, I kind of uh, found out recently was that during COVID, the Northern Store would actually get some of its employees to volunteer their time, instead of paying them for the work, uh, to volunteer their time to pack food packages for community members so they could be delivered you know, while people were quarantined. And to me, it's shocking that, I mean, Safeway would not have asked its customers, uh, sorry, its staff to do that. It would have paid them overtime to do that, right? And so there's a way in which, you know, the Northern Stores relies on this sort of relationships and the familiar relationships and the concern for community that people have in order to to behave the way that they do. And and yeah, we're we're really just scratching the surface here, but there's there's obviously Sorry. a lot. No, but no, it's 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 there's a, obviously a lot here, and really why people should go and and read the book, check it out. So again, it's plundering the North: a history of settler colonialism, corporate welfare, and food insecurity. Uh, Chris, we'll start with you. Where can people get the book? Where would you recommend them to get the book? Where can they keep up with all the things that you have going on? So the book is was published by the University of Manitoba Press. Uh, it's available through their website. Travis? Yeah, yeah. Available through the University of Manitoba Press website. It's in their fall catalog. Uh, they've been really supportive of, uh, of my work, and I really, really uh, had a great time working with the University of Manitoba Press. Buy it in triplicate if you have the funds <laughs> in order to, please. <laughs> No, they're a great press to work with. The people there have been fabulous and supportive and patient with us getting our, our manuscript to them. Awesome. And uh, check the show notes below. We will link to the uh, the University of Manitoba page where you can check out uh, the book. So again, Plundering the North, A History of Settler Colonialism, Corporate Welfare, and Food Insecurity. Kristen Burnett, Travis Hay, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. So there you have it, my chat with Kristen Burnett and Travis Hay. I thank them for their time. Once again, Plundering the North, a history of settler colonialism, corporate welfare, and food insecurity. And with that, let's get right to today's historical headline of the week, which today comes from APTN News. UN reviews high food insecurity rates in northern territories from August 31st, 2023. This is actually a video from APTN National News, where they were in Iqaluit talking with the local food center, which gave a presentation to the United Nations Fourth Periodic Human Rights Review discussing food insecurity, the struggle to get affordable food in the North, and some of the challenges that Kristen and Travis talk about, the community members there, you see them discussing as well. Really interesting, really great to get just a sense of the discussions happening in northern communities. As I say, normally I like to post a article, a written article, but I really enjoyed watching this particular piece from APTN National News. So it is down there in the show notes for today's historical headline of the week. UN reviews high food insecurity rates in Canada's northern territories.
And with that, I will say thank you so much for listening, everybody. If you have not yet, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, likes, rates, comments, all that stuff helps us grow, helps other people find the show. As always, you can head on over to activehistory.ca. All of our past episodes are there, plus a lot of the great written material over on the website. Daniel Ross this week, wonderful piece about rent in Vancouver and how, yes, it's very, very high now. But that's not a new phenomenon. He went out to Vancouver, looked at the municipal archives, some very illuminating letters from the 60s and 70s talking about rent out there. So definitely recommend you check that one out or any of the wonderful material over there on activehistory.ca. And of course, if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, what's oldest news at gmail.com. So thanks so much, everybody, for listening. We'll be back with you again soon for more What's Old is News.